This episode is brought to you by the generosity of our listeners. If you don't rise to your personal best in the face of your personal apocalypse, then you will not survive. That's Dave McIntyre, wilderness survivor and season two winner of History Channel's Alone Show on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. I'm Larry Gates. And this is Armin Asadi. And we are here to help you put your faith to work, to bring out your personal best, and to enjoy what God has put inside of you. There's a bold idea that he's just dying to get out of you, and uh, we all need to uh, to be inspired to do that. And today is no different, and we have a, just a really terrific guest lined up for us today, don't we, Armin? We do indeed. This is going to be a fun convo. <laughs> yes, it, it really was. And Dave McIntyre is a wilderness survival instructor. Now, he has gone to places that I would just not dare to go. He is the author of The Fall, a fictional series about surviving an apocalypse, and he is three books into a six-part series. It looks very exciting. But really, we have him on the show in large part to talk about his experiences on being the season two winner of the History Channel's Alone Show. He survived for 66 weeks in the wilderness and uh, got the grand prize of half a million dollars for doing so, but he got much, much more than that. And that's what we're going to talk to him about. So without any further ado, welcome Dave McIntyre to the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, thank you. You know, so glad to have you. You're welcome. And so glad to have you on the show. You know, we don't often speak to wilderness survival people, and I, frankly, you are probably my alter ego in a way because I could not do any of the stuff that I think you did uh, in the, when you were think, uh, on the History Channel in the Alone I think series. You surprise yourself. No, no, if I'm, you're that desperate, you, you would surprise yourself. Yeah, maybe so. But we're going to get into that in a little bit. But I want to just—I want to get your story about how you got from you know. Well, what what inspired you, first of all, to become a wilderness survival instructor? I mean, what got you into the great outdoors? Oh, wow. I, I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, and we had a house up in the mountains. And it just was became a habit for my brother and I to spend the weekends out on the mountains when we were growing up. And uh, that developed into a passion for wilderness survival because I made so many mistakes out there early on that I had to solve the problem. And, uh, yeah, so I grew up doing this for probably about 15 years old on. Yeah, so— as a young man, then you you and your brother decided you're just going to go out and see if you had it, what it takes to survive in the wilderness. Now, what was what was that like? Uh, you know, cutting your teeth on this new kind of skill. Did, did you guys get into any serious trouble? Oh, sure. I, I say all the time if if you haven't had your head handed to you by the wilderness, you didn't go in deep enough or stay long enough. <laughs> and, and that's a fact. I mean, the wilderness is the wilderness because it already kicked us out. Mm. You know, every place in the world, we've tried to colonize it, and the wilderness beat us back. So any wilderness that's out there now is the nasty kind of place where people really don't do well. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a as a kid, we just spent so much time out there, and you end up making mistakes and looking for solutions. And wilderness survival just became a, the reason I was going out there was to solve those problems. Well, what was, the, that, what was the scariest moment as a young man uh, doing this for the first time that you had? Oh, early on, my brother and I went out one, one weekend, and it was— uh, we we did, we were very unprepared for the weather conditions changed dramatically and we were we got rained on and had to walk out about seven miles and it was pitch black we didn't have a flashlight and you know we knew where we were but it was so dark you couldn't see ended up walking uh, about seven miles to get out and it was yeah it was scary it was one of those things that it was a wake up call that you don't go into these places without being prepared. And then you came home though and you must have had some kind of exhilaration from that because you went back out again. Oh, yeah, those, those things weren't going to defeat us. They were, they were just problems to be overcome. And, you improvise, adapt, overcome. That's the, the mantra of wilderness survival is that you have to do what it takes and you have to learn the skills and carry the right preparations and things. And I did that all through my teen years. And then I went to become a missionary in Brazil later on and I uh, brought all those skills with me to Brazil where there's more wilderness than I ever dreamed. Yeah, so what was that like? Tell me about your, your missionary time in Brazil. Were you... I'm assuming you were out in, in, in the wilderness there. 
No, actually, no. We were uh, I, I first I was there from ninety to ninety two as a missionary teacher. I taught uh, taught American kids. And then in 1995, we candidated uh, to become full-time church planning missionaries. Uh, I did a pastoral internship, um, raised our support, and in 1999, we went back as full-time church planners. And we were in the city of Belo Horizonte, which is you know five and a half million people. And it's very—I was an urban. Uh, <laughs> That's the pastor. urban wilderness, right? <laughs> yeah, the concrete jungle. And uh, I—it just you know—it drove me crazy to be in the city. And I started looking for areas that I could get out. And I found a wonderful area called the Waimee Forest, which is, uh, it was 140 square kilometers of just prime wilderness. And it was untouched. And I, I just, I started going out there myself and then uh, began leading groups of young people out there. And that turned into a full-blown wilderness survival ministry uh, called Per Ardua. So what was the big difference between Pennsylvania wilderness and Brazilian wilderness in terms of surviving? Oh, wow. We had... Where in in the Waimee Forest, if you go in the lowland, it's uh, it's single canopy jungle called Mata Atlantica in Portuguese, and if you go in the middle elevation, it's uh, actually a, a like a desert scrub area. Hmm. And I was I was in an area where we had in the in the lowland we had uh, single canopy jungle in the middle elevation scrub uh, like a desert scrub area, and then above that mountains that went up to six thousand feet. So depending on which time of the year it was, in rainy season in the lowland, you're in rainforest, and in dry season in the mid, uh, in the Cerrado, in the middle elevation, it was desert, and you parked the car in the same place. <laughs> you know, so you had, as a wilderness survival instructor, you had uh, desert techniques in the dry season and, and jungle rainforest techniques in the rainy season, plus 6,000-foot mountains above you with an ecosystem all their own. So I was in, in wilderness survival <laughs> heaven there. <laughs> <laughs> Every day was a different adventure, literally, right? Sure. Yeah. So, all right. So you got to Brazil. You, you, you opened up this wilderness training program that became your ministry. What happened after that? Well, that was a, a big part of my ministry. And then in uh, 2008, the dollar collapsed. And I had to actually work down in Brazil to keep, uh, keep us afloat financially. So I opened up the Bushmaster Wilderness Survival School to paying customers. And that was also an outreach ministry as well. Um, working with, uh, you know, all kinds of people from the military police, different, uh, different groups would come in and take our, our training. And it all ended in 2012, uh, when my wife decided to divorce me and, mm. uh, that was Ouch. a blow. Yeah. You didn't see that coming. We had been through some horrific experiences down there. I don't want to go into all the details. Mm -hmm. Um, it just, uh, yeah, the marriage didn't survive. Mm. our time in Brazil. And uh, she decided to divorce me and move back to Michigan. And uh, that's how I wound up in Michigan. And uh, everything, I lost everything in that. So here you are, you're, you're in Brazil, your, your marriage implodes, and you find yourself, well, almost metaphorically alone at that point, right? Sure. I, I, I moved here to Michigan so I could be near my kids and I got a job inspecting foreclosed homes and did that for about a year and a half. And then the, uh, the company I worked for lost its, the contract for Michigan. So I was out of my secular job and just really wondering what in the world was happening with my life. It seemed like everything was just gone. Mm -hmm. And then I got an, uh, a Facebook message from left field uh, pictures and they wanted to, they said, Hey, you look like a good candidate for a wilderness survival show. Could you apply? And I looked at it and it was, you know, you go anywhere in the world for up to a year by yourself, filming it all yourself, no food, no outside help. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, that's, that's a rough challenge. Then it said half million dollar cash prize. I said, yeah. yeah, I can do that. <laughs> well, when you're, <laughs> when you just lost your job, you're back home and you're pretty much trying to figure out where does the Lord want to go? And you get a knock on a Facebook door that says, would you be interested in maybe getting a half million dollars? It sounds pretty attractive, yeah. right? It was a Hail Mary pass. I mean, I'll, I'll admit it. It was like, yeah. you know what? I'm not doing anything right now. This is the crazy, you know, a, a friend of mine said that, he, you know, he was, he, he got divorced and remarried five years later. And he said the thing that killed him about it is he didn't do anything cool in the interval. Mm. You know, he should have gone to Australia and done a walkabout when he was still single. And I thought, you know, this thing qualifies. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, that's uh, that's a, that's kind of a radical departure from a normal life. Now, you were... Uh, approached because, if I remember reading right, that you had some stuff out on a YouTube channel that they saw. Is that right? Yes, I have a YouTube channel that's devoted to wilderness survival and bushcraft and mainly filmed in Brazil. And uh, yeah, they, they had seen that and uh, thought I'd be a good candidate for the show. So I applied and I went right through the casting process. They 
they took 20 of us out to boot camp in New York, and out of that, 10 people got selected to go on the show. What was boot camp? They put you through your paces. They want to see you, you know, up close and personal, and they it's camera training and physicals, and they, they really poke you and prod you and, and figure out who you are. But they also put you through like an advanced wilderness survival course uh, for two days out in the, the in the woods and see how you actually perform. And they want to, they have survival experts that evaluate your skill level and aptitude. And okay, so I got to think. What, what were <laughs> as a survival trainer yourself? What did you think of their training program? <laughs> That's literally what I was well, about to ask. <laughs> well, there, it was not training. It was uh, they would give us tasks to do and we would do them. I can't reveal all the things they had us do out there, but. Sure. It was uh, on par with our advanced course that, that I taught in Brazil, pretty much the same types of tasks, uh, very uh, skill intensive and equipment uh, with no equipment. And it was it was very it was rough. Were the other but contestants I, I, also survivalists as well? Yeah, everybody. It was a really neat group of people. Everybody had their their different uh, wilderness things, other instructors. Uh, one of the guys was an, uh, an instructor for the Air Force. Another uh, was an instructor for a very prestigious school out west. Um, everybody had their skill set. Yeah, it was a very highly skilled group of people. Mm-hmm. Were there any other professed Christians in that group other than yourself? Uh, yeah, there were, and uh, it was it, it was uh, very it was very comforting to know that the they, they made no distinction about that left field. You know, didn't care one way or the other. You know, everyone had their spiritual. Uh, background and things, and they they left that as part of who we are as people. They didn't edit any of that out. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's unique. And how did you? I mean, I know you were alone uh, when you were in the wilderness. They they took you to what North Vancouver Island? Is that right? Yes, north north end of Vancouver Island. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I know you were alone when you were out there, and I know you were out there for sixty six days, if I think that if I remember right. Yeah. Um, h- how did you grow though before that with? respect to the other contestants on the show in terms of your relationships with them? Well, we were together for the, uh, the, the one week of the boot camp, And then after that, uh, we went to Vancouver Island. We were, we had an orientation period of a week before we actually dropped off into the bush. So we all got to know each other very well. And, uh, we're all, all good friends. It's, uh, as a wilderness survival instructor, you don't often meet people that have the same interests and skill sets and experiences as you do. And this was really neat to get to know them as friends, uh, yeah, the, the show is structured as a competition, but it doesn't feel that way because you're alone while you're doing it. It's not like you're in contact with these people. Yeah. You don't, you don't know if you're ahead or behind or how the others are doing or any of that, right? You have no idea whatsoever what's going on with the other contestants. And so you're not really competing against anybody. You're competing against yourself and, and trying to do this as long as you can. It all depends on you. If somebody else is having a fantastic time, you know, a mile or two down the coast, it doesn't, affect your performance at all okay so we're all close friends and we all still stay in touch with each other yeah okay so they drop you off and you're in they and they tell you this is your zone or this is your territory i'm guessing uh, and is the only instruction at that point just to make it for as long as you can yeah i mean we, we had uh we had to obey the, the certain rules you know on land we couldn't there were certain animals we couldn't hunt and things like that we had to obey the, the laws uh, but other than that, yeah, they, they didn't even give us a, a de- any demarcation of what our territory was. They just said, okay, we're dropping you off here and uh, do whatever you need to do to survive. So what couldn't you hunt and what couldn't you eat? Uh, on land, we had to obey the, the normal uh, hunting laws of British Columbia and uh, also for freshwater fishing. I didn't have any freshwater fish in my area anyway, but we would have had to obey the regular hunting laws of uh, British Columbia for that. But in the in the ocean, we had a very different uh, licensing uh, structure for what we could do in the ocean. So basically, any method, any species, any limit uh, was open to us for uh, dealing with the salt water. So the lucky guy who maybe uh, was a Canadian citizen that happened to have a bear hunting license or something was probably better off. <laughs> oh, we all had hunting licenses. Oh, all we right. Okay. regular British... Columbia hunting and fishing licenses, but okay. they uh, are the license that we had for uh, fish fishing in salt water was very different and not a commonly obtained license. Uh, but it was you. a license issued by the government. Yeah. So, all right. So you set off, and and really, there's no objective other than kind of making it through day to day. What were some of the first objectives that you set for yourself? Well, the basics of wilderness survival are shelter, fire, water, signals, navigation, and food gathering, and. Uh, Shelter, fire, and water gives you stability, and 
that allows you to stay where you are. Uh, you know, fight off hypothermia and dehydration are the two main killers in a wilderness survival situation. So shelter, fire, and water were my, were my first objective. So I, I set up a, provision or a provisional camp that first day, and I actually did have shelter, fire, and water by nightfall of, of the, that first day. But I wanted to get a, a handle on what the weather conditions and weather patterns would be before I spent the energy to build a permanent camp. And uh, I stayed there, I think, a week and a half in that shelter. What was that shelter made of? Uh, we, had, we had two tarps. They gave us a large tarp. It was about a 20 by 20 foot tarp as, uh, that we could use, but I didn't use that one for the provisional shelter. The other tarp was to be used to cover our camera gear. So it was a much smaller tarp. And I set that up as like a plow point shelter, like a tent, and uh, stayed in that for about a week and a half while I figured out what the weather was doing. And we had a major storm that week. That first week, it was about 60 mile an hour winds and driving rain. And I was in that provisional shelter during that time. But that also, when I looked at it, it flooded my forest so deep, I had picked out four locations for, for a possible permanent shelter. And three of them were underwater after that storm. Mm, so wow. that told me exactly where I had to build. And that's why I waited. Yeah, that's that's good. You do not want to build a sh shelter underwater. I think I know that much about wilderness <laughs> <Yeah>. survival. <laughs> that's a given. So once you get the three, the and you get your stability, the shelter, fire, water. Then what do you move on to as your next objective? Well, in a wilderness survival situation, you think about either self-rescuing by navigating out or attracting attention to yourself, uh, you know, signaling. And those two were not options on alone. You're out there just to be there for as long as you can. So food is becomes the number one limiting factor. If you can't eat, you can't survive. And uh, I had never set foot on the Pacific coast. So I'm looking you know, for food sources and where the game is and where the fish are and, and all that. Uh, it took me two weeks before I caught my first fish. Two weeks. Wow. So yeah. what, were you, what were you eating between your first fish? And when uh, you got there, body fat mainly. <laughs> so you didn't pack your you didn't pack your uh, coat with Snickers bars. No, no, no. We <laughs> actually were searched before we left. That they they go through all of our gear. I did have five pounds of pemmican, which is an emergent as an emergency food source. I had sacrificed one piece of gear for five pounds of pemmican, and I didn't eat it during that first uh, three weeks because I wanted. I knew that November. We dropped off late September, and I knew November was going to be the lean month for me, so I wanted my pemmican for that. So I basically fasted most of that first three weeks. I lost 24 pounds wow. in the first three weeks. Was there, was there a time during your 66 days where you weren't sure how long you could go on? You know, in the beginning, uh, before I started feeding regularly, I, that was the main concern. It, and, until I, I found a food source which I, was repeatable and methods that were repeatable, uh, that was the difficulty, and that gave me pause. I knew that if I if I continued to lose weight at that rate, I wouldn't be able to stay. But then I I got enough food that my weight loss stopped, and it actually reversed. And at the end, I was gaining weight. So I, I got better and better at being there the longer I was there. So I was no, I never really hovered over the button or thought, you know, maybe this is it. Well, talk about how you identified your food source. Well. I knew certain, there's certain foods in the, in the wild which, are, which don't run away, like the limpets, and they were all over the rocks there. A limpet is a single-shelled organism that sticks to the rocks, and he feeds by scraping the rocks. He doesn't filter the water, so he doesn't get red tide poisoning. So I had a lot of limpets. I watched the, uh, the mink catching eels in the rocks near on my beach, and I knew there was eels there, so I started eating eels and little crabs and, and limpets at first, and then uh, bull kelp. My cove was choked with bull kelp which is an edible seaweed and then i just learned where the fish were and uh started uh fishing with a line and a hook well, what kind of, wait what kind of fish were you catching off your single line well you know in a wilderness survival situation you want to uh you want to use passive fishing like nets and, and set lines and things like that because they're working for you while you're doing other things and there was so much debris in my cove uh, with uh, bull kelp and cedar logs and all that, all my passive systems were failing, and uh, I got to the, I got frustrated with that to the point where I, I stopped setting lines. I lost uh, seven hooks in the first two weeks, being ripped out by bull kelp. Uh, my nets were being uh, destroyed, and they weren't catching anything. So I ended up 
doing active fishing, which meant I had at low tide, I had to get out to the reef or different places and uh, just with a line and the hook and catch fish. I was catching uh, kelp greenling and sea perch mainly. I'm kind of curious about how this experience affected you as you were in it. How, how did you see uh, your dependence on God deepen or change or what was the spiritual aspect of this a, a journey for you like? When you stop eating, your body goes into a detox mode where all the toxins in your body start coming out, and that's why you feel awful. Mm -hmm. And mentally, the same thing happens when you're in isolation, that all of the junk from your past that you thought you dealt with comes to the surface, and it forces you to deal with it. And about a month in, that came to a head for me, where I had been through some really horrific circumstances in Brazil and things that had done uh, have been done to our family. I've just been through a divorce, which is a you know I was able to 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 go through all the and, and see for the first time the way I had failed in my marriage mm. without being told how I failed. Mm. Yeah, I was dealing with it myself rather than having accusations thrown at me or, or that sort of thing. And I had to deal with all that. And I one by one, I remember uh, this this one day just confessing my failings to to God and receiving that forgiveness. But then all of a sudden, other faces came up and other events where I was not the one who was at fault. There were some horrible things that had been done to us as a family, and I had to forgive them as well. It wasn't like I, I could receive forgiveness from God for the things that I had done and then not extend forgiveness to those, uh, those people. So one by one, the Lord brought them to mind, and I had to forgive them. And after that happened, I felt spiritually, I felt light as a feather out there. What was harder, and, uh, forgiving yourself or forgiving them? Yeah, there, it, it's that's a very good question. I, you know, forgiving yourself. Wow, it was harder. I don't know if you can say it was harder. It's different mm-hmm. because you know the things. You know, my own failings were were well known. You know, my my wife married married me with both eyes you know wide open and things, but. The level of stress that our family had been under in Brazil brought out all of our coping mechanisms mm. and they had to be, you know, they failed basically. So I had my, my normal human failings. I, I say like my ship sank, you know, and I was at the helm, but it sank in a hurricane and it was hard to separate out what was my contribution and what were the things that had happened as outside forces affecting the family. And in that solitude, I was able to, decipher between the two and the Lord started with me and then brought immediately brought to mind the the other events that had happened and I I think the Lord put me out there to go through that experience on a personal level that's that was his goal for me out there to to go through that uh, catharsis yeah looking in hindsight it sounds like uh, you had all of your support structures your job and all that taken away from you well, I said uh, on the show, you know, who yeah. are you when everything's been stripped away? Yeah. When everything you've looked to for a sense of life or purpose or meaning is simply gone. And I wasn't thinking about the fact that I was in the wilderness. I was thinking about the wilderness that I had been through mm. and having everything stripped away. And I remember about day six sitting out there thinking, Lord, you've taken everything away from me except my life and my health. And I'm literally exiled to a rock on the north end of nowhere. And everything is gone mm. except for my life and my health. And I, and I, I remember thinking you know, I'm okay with that. If you want to take those things too, then, you know, they're yours as well. And, uh, there was this little spark of hope when I thought that, that maybe he's out here to do something entirely different, that he's going to allow me to keep my life and my health and do something spectacular. Yeah. You're alone, but not alone. No. And that was one of the things that I remember thinking the show is called alone, but I never feel that I'm alone. And in the times that the, the darkest moments of my life to that point, the Lord had always been present with me in, in a very real and tangible way that I knew that, that he was there. And he he sent me out there to that wilderness and he went with me. And I had that confidence that I was not alone. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. I mean, of course, we love our corporate sponsors, but I really love it when we have an episode that's sponsored by our listeners. 
Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree with you. It's the best compliments we ever get is knowing that people are out there that want to invest in this to keep this going. And I think everybody knows, I hope by now that we are doing this as really as a passion project. Neither of us take any money from it. In fact, it costs us more than we are getting even in sponsorships to put this program out on the air. So every little bit helps. That's right. So if you want to help invest in this and keep this thing going, we'd love to see your support. Just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And remember, every donation you make is a tax deductible contribution and comes from the bottom of our heart. A sincere thank you. So, Dave, I want to take this deeper, but I, before I do, I want to I want to take it to the end of the show um, and towards the tail end of what's happening. So, what's going on with you, and what's going on with the few remaining um, survivors? Obviously, you didn't know at the time, but after the fact, you knew. So, since you know what's going on now, since you already won, but you didn't know this at the time. So, what's going on with you in that moment uh, towards the tail end? What's going on with the other? Uh, one or two guys that are left uh, towards the tail end as well. Well, the other, the the fifth contestant to tap out uh, was on day 35, and that was uh, Justin. He had tapped out on day 35, and leaving four of us, uh, it would have been four of us out there. On day 57, Nicole Appellian, uh, Dr. Nicole Appellian, uh, anthropologist and marine biologist, uh, she uh, went home. She, as she puts it, her kids called her home. So she tapped out. Um, two days later, uh, Jose Amoedo uh, flipped his. He had built a kayak. Okay, talk about oh, women's wow. skill. The man wow. built a kayak <laughs> with a knife. Okay, yeah. Um, he flipped his kayak and realized that he would be hypothermic by by night. Mm-hmm. So he tapped out. And that was on day fifty nine, and that left uh, Larry Roberts and I out there. And Larry, uh, uh, by day sixty four. He decided that he was not able to turn his food situation around. He was uh, basically starving and was not able to obtain enough food to continue. And he left it all in the field. Larry is tough as nails, Minnesota man. And, uh, Darn right. And Minnesota That's tough. Russ. And he, <laughs> he decided, he decided to, to, to pack it in on day 64, and that left me out there by myself. And uh, it, they took two days to get my daughter out there so she could meet me and tell me that I had won. But towards the end there, I was, uh, like I said before, I was getting better and better at, at feeding myself out there. It turned into a very hard lifestyle of working 12 hours a day to get one decent meal and then go to bed and repeat the next day. But as long as that was happening, there was no reason for me to, to tap out. As long as I went to bed every night warm, dry, watered, and fed, there was no reason not to attempt the same thing the next day. But I remember the extreme fatigue and just uh, just asking the Lord to do those tasks for me, through me. So how much more time did you have in you? I mean, this is day 66. The last guy tapped out 64. How, how much more did you have well, in you? Uh, I had, when I, when I came out of the bush, I had uh, two and one-sixth pounds of uh, my pemmican. And at the time I was eating that, uh, if I went 48 hours without getting a meal from the cove, I would break that fast with a one-sixth pound portion of pemmican. Uh, cooked as stew with some bulk help. And uh, at the end there, I was not willing to wait that 48 hours. Uh, so I had at least 13 of those meals left. Oh. Uh, I could have lasted until day 80 without having to forage. Oh, wow. and that was my buffer against you know the, 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 the abyss, that I, I didn't have to hit. It. Some days the weather's so bad, you can't fish, you can't do anything. So on those days, I, I still had the pemmican. So I had 13 days that I could have been completely skunked or 13 days that I didn't have to produce anything from the cove. That would have taken me to day 80. Uh, at the outside, I would say Christmas around day 90 would have been the absolute limit for me. So I have to ask, it was a touching moment on the show when your daughter walks up unannounced behind you and, uh, and you notice her for the first time. What was going on in your mind? Well, they had they had gotten on, when they came out to do the medical check that day. They said you know, they wanted to do an interview with me back at my shelter because I had changed some things and they wanted to ask me some questions. And they were doing that, and but they came at, at high tide, and right as the water was going down, I had to get out there and, and and fish or else I was going to go hungry that night. So I really was kind of annoyed at them and trying not to appear so on camera. 
And uh, the producer kind of ran out of questions to ask, and it was getting kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm like, guys, wrap it up. You know, you got what you need. And and then I hear someone coming up behind me, and I turn to my daughter standing there, and oh my goodness, that that moment was just surreal. The relief of knowing that I could stop doing mm. all that backbreaking labor. I wasn't even thinking about the money when I turned around. It was just I got to see her. I got to know that my kids were okay, that everything was okay. I had survived this thing. I didn't have to continue to do, because it stopped being fun about day 45. (laughs) After after the show, there's a lot that happens. So now uh, you won, you win the $500,000, you see your daughter, you're going home, going back to, you know, normal civilized life. But now you get to see everything that happened. You get to watch the videos. You get to see the other survivors. What, what, what did you learn? What did you see? What were your takeaways? Oh, wow. First of all, you, you change psychologically when you're out there. Uh, I, remember, I remember at the beginning, I would have dreams at night about food and people. <laughs> I'd be at a big meal or I'd be shopping. I'd be in crowds of people and lots of food because those were the two things my mind you know, I didn't have. And towards the end, I was started dreaming just about fishing and hunting and catching animals and being in the out there in, in nature. And my, my dreams were the same as my waking hours, except I was much more successful at getting food in my dreams than I was in, you know, <laughs> while I was awake. But it puts you into this Homo sapiens 1.0 programming, mm. which is very hard to turn off. Mm. And it's very, it feels very good to be that guy out there. And then for the other contestants, they had a shutdown period where in, in which they were contemplating leaving. Most of them, one left because of an injury, but they're contemplating leaving. They're thinking they're crunching the numbers and saying, OK, it's time for me to get going. And they have this mental preparation to leave the island. For me, it was very different. They just came in and just pulled me out in the helicopter. And I didn't have that. Uh, that was the one takeaway I looked at. It. Their experience is very different from mine is that they left by decision. And I left suddenly while I was very much in that mindset of continuing. Uh, that was very jarring to me to be just suddenly ripped out of that context and put back in with people. Yeah. I imagine you got back home, you crawled into a very uncomfortable bed that you hadn't slept in in 66 days. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you probably had dreams about catching fish again, right? <laughs> well, you, you come out and it's everything looks new again. Everything looks, uh, you feel like you're the wealthiest person in the world because you can open up a refrigerator and it's just, everything's there. <laughs> and uh, I remember on the island being convicted by a can of yams that I'd open up the cupboard above my stove and there would be all my canned goods there. And there's a can of yams in the middle. I remember looking at that a hundred times thinking, yeah, I'm out of food and you go shopping. Mm. And on the island, I remember that can of thinking, oh my goodness, what would I pay for that can of yams right now? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it is sitting on my display of, of stuff from alone, just yeah. as a reminder to me that, that it's all a matter of perspective. To a starving man, that can of yams is solid gold. So now how did this experience, I know you've done a lot of wilderness survival stuff, but this sounds like this was kind of the extreme form for you. And how did this shape you and change you um, as a man and as a, as a follower of Jesus? Well, it, it's difficult for me to separate the lessons that I learned on the island as opposed to the ones I learned going through you know, 15 years as a missionary and all that. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I took a lot of the lessons I learned as a missionary out there and the Lord confirmed them to me while I was there. Uh, for me, it, it was an extreme, it's, a, it's almost like he encapsulated my previous experience with this very vivid wilderness experience and, give, and gave me a, that, that story to tell. For me, I, I, there, there's things that we know, we, we read in scripture and we know them intellectually or, or mentally, it's another thing when you know them experientially. Uh, we've all experienced God's provision, but we kind of wonder, was that me that did that, or was that God that accomplished that in my life? And when you are starving and you don't have the ability to continue to fish, and yet you have to in order to live, and God literally gives you a fish, tells you where to cast, and, and gives you that, that bounty, uh, it, it means something. You know, I, I've, I've said before, the you know, Romans 12 prohibits us from taking our own revenge. And that's all fine and good when no one's messing with you. Mm-hmm. But when you have been attacked and when you have people out there that are mortal enemies and are seeking your destruction, all of a sudden those verses become very real. That by experience, we have to not take our revenge. Yeah. It, and, and by experience, I have experienced God's provision 
in a very real, tangible, right now sort of way, where if I don't get that, that food from the cove, I will go hungry tonight. And it was a hand-to-mouth existence. And just having the strength to continue to do the, the tasks I needed to do, I, I got to the point where God was giving me that strength moment by moment, depending on him moment by moment. Well, I mean, earlier you even said you were gaining weight towards the tail end of your time yeah, there. And I the wasn't last getting guy fat that... out there. I, I had gotten down to about 160 pounds, and I was actually rebounding from that. But I was very thin. You could see the bones in my chest, and my legs were like toothpicks, and... You don't see it on camera because I'm wearing all that bulky clothes, but I was just rattling around in that suit. (laughs) Now, you have written a series of books as well about um, really fiction books about surviving in a biological holocaust. I'm probably drawing upon all your expertise as a survival trainer, but uh, tell us what those books are about. Well, the the thing that I drew upon as a survivalist to write that story is the group dynamic I've observed uh, leading groups in the wilderness that if you don't rise to your personal best in the face of your personal apocalypse, then you will not survive. And I get, I got tired of seeing uh, survival books or, you know, post-apocalyptic books where everyone's just reduced to animals and that's how they survive. And in the real world, if you're reduced to an animal like that, you don't survive. You don't survive unless you pull together, work together and rise to your personal and moral best. So I thought of uh, how would I communicate those things in a, in a fictional format um, the, the books are not, uh, I wouldn't say it's a, a Christian book. It doesn't follow the biblical plan of prophecy or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I use the apocalypse as a way to strip away all the hubris surrounding uh, people and, and reduce them to their core values. Uh, basically, the story is 90% of the, of the world's population is wiped out. 10% wake up from this totally psychotic. And my main character wakes up and he's in his right mind, but has to survive in this world, which is mainly died or gone crazy. So you just had a really catchy line there. You said, "If you don't serve, if you don't rise to your personal best during your personal apocalypse," I didn't hear. They're asking you to repeat that. If you don't rise to your personal best in the face of your personal apocalypse, you will not survive. And that's the, that's the main theme of of the book. The other principles in the book are that people are not disposable. It's a it's a zombie apocalypse book, but with zombies for thinking people that actually makes sense. And I've thoroughly researched the mechanism that uh, that caused it in the story. Number one, it has to be a good adventure story. And, you know, on top of that, I wanted to communicate values and uh, that morality matters. Our values matter. These things are what makes us the best. Mm. And if you if your horrible circumstances don't bring that out of you, um, you know, everybody goes through hardship in life. Everybody goes through difficulties. But what are you going to let that difficulty do? Are you going to let that difficulty drive you closer to God and to draw strength from him? Or are you going to become a bitter person, reject him, reject other people, lash out, uh, try all your failed coping mechanisms? None of them work. Mm. And the story basically is about a, a group of people that I, I don't want to give away the, the, the main twist of the story. Yeah. But the, the zombies in this story are, are, are very much part of the story. They become characters in the story. So I. Mm. Uh, People are not disposable, but people are also very dangerous, and you have to engage with very dangerous people in order to save them. If you had to give your best advice to someone who is trying to rise to their personal best in the face of their personal apocalypse, what would that word of advice be? The point is the Lord will put you through circumstances that nullify you. And he will put you through more than you can handle. He will reduce you to nothing in the equation so that you will depend upon him and that sometimes the circumstances that we are facing are designed by him to do exactly that, to bring us to a point of weakness where we understand our weakness, where we admit our weakness. We think that the strength of our lives will rise and fall in our our personal strength and personal performance. And that is not the case that God will, you know, at the end of our lives, the last thing he allows, he will allow us to do is turn around and point to our own accomplishments and tell the world what we did. That's not how God is glorified. God is glorified when he reduces us to weakness and then pours out his strength in us. But he won't do that to somebody he hasn't broken. Mm. But we would just take credit for that. We would say, look what I did. Mm-hmm. Where I know, I know what I'm not. I know how weak I am. I know that he brought me to the point where I could not literally put a, a log on a chopping block and split it without him prompting me to do it. You know, I know how weak I am. I know that he had, he had reduced me to nothing. And that's the, that's the message of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you know, that we despaired even of life. Yeah, so good. That we were reduced to nothing. And he will do that. So we want our lives to be 
this constant getting better of, of personal peace and affluence and always getting a raise, getting a better car, a new computer, and everything just getting better, all of our relationships functioning you know, perfectly. And these are the things where we're drawing life from. And they can blind us to the true source of life, which is the Lord and our relationship with him. And he will, if he so chooses, take those things away to open our eyes to that reality. Wow. Now so, that's bold. So good. So I like good. that. All right. Now, uh, right. Dave, how, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Through my website, DaveMcIntyreWilderness.org. I am also on YouTube as Colhane. Facebook, Dave McIntyre. Uh, hit me up on Facebook. And my book series is out on Kindle. Uh, if you just search for Dave McIntyre, The Fall, you'll find all three volumes. Volume four is about 85% done. Uh, that will be coming out not shortly, but uh, soonly. <laughs> and there will be uh, six, uh, six books in the series altogether. Oh, great. Well, we'll have links to all of those um, in our show notes as well, so our listeners can get at that very quickly. But Dave, I want to thank you again for being on the Bold Idea podcast. Very inspiring what you went through and what God has taught you. And I think there's lessons for all of us to take and apply in our own lives through it. So, thanks Well, again. thanks for having me out this morning. This has been fun. It has. Thank you again, Dave. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but um, I don't think I'm cut out to be a survivalist. <laughs> I dream about it. I would fail day two, but I dream about the idea. I, th- I, I romanticize it, mainly because of that book. I don't remember what it was called, The Robin- Robinson Family, Robinson Crusoe, Robin. I, I don't remember some family that got lost on an island or trapped on an island. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I do not. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Robinson Crusoe, right? Is, the is, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't yeah. know. There's so many Robinson books. But yeah, that, that book got me obsessed with the idea of being stranded on an island. Well, I, I'm i fine to watch it. I'm romanticized <laughs> totally. by it. And I've read books on it. But I know that um, I probably, you know, it's ironic here because you and I just did an episode of getting outside your comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and why would we have a guest on? <laughs> What's God trying to say here? <laughs> this is way outside our comfort zone. So I think what we need to do is we need to find a comfortable way to pack his learnings <laughs> into our little lives. That's right. <laughs> without going into the wilderness. Without having to go into the wilderness. Oh, man. So I, what was your greatest takeaway? Because it I, I have mine, but I don't. I don't know if I want to get into it. It might get too long. So, but what was your takeaway? Well, I don't know. If I, I don't know if I want to rank them in terms of greatest. I, I tell you, one thing that really stood out to me is, you know, I was impressed by this whole um, discussion about really needing to get um, down to uh, down to the core essence. And I think, if anything else, maybe that survival um, kind of environment helps you realize how dependent you are on yourself on your own skill your own strength and really how little we contemplate our own weakness and him having that experience and also that time that he talked about which seemed like it was such a hallowed ground moment for him where he he had to get to that point where he forgave himself and he forgave others Mm. and that's when you just say not only can i not carry my own weight on all this stuff but i I have nothing that I can carry over and above somebody else. In other words, I, I, I am not lifted up in such a way that I can, I can make a, a claim on someone else's life in a way that condemns them. You know, and there's just this whole sense of just coming right down to this cleansing that he had that I think for all of us we need those moments in our lives where we just come back to that realization that God is enough. And no matter where we are and how we feel about life, he's sufficient. Right. That's right. It's funny because he reminded me while he was talking, one of the most memorable mentoring sessions I have ever had in my life. And uh, it was while I was going through what, you know, Christians have coined the wilderness season. Right. Mm -hmm. So every time you have a wilderness season, when things aren't going your way, it's the wilderness. Right. Exactly. And, um, (laughs) and I, and I remember my mentor asked me, so when you think of wilderness, what do you think of? You know? And I, and I said, I, you know, I, I think of desert and he says, so when you think of a desert, what do you think of? And I said, you know, sand, dot, 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 death. You know, mm-hmm. I filled in the blanks and mm-hmm. said, basically I think of death. And, uh, 
And then he says, don't you find it interesting that Christians define seasons that their lives aren't going their way as desert seasons or wilderness seasons? And I said, well, I I think it's, it's an appropriate term because it does feel like you're spiritually dying, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's what I kind of felt like. And, um, and then he started going into it and he said, all right, uh, in the Bible, how many times have you seen a person in the de- in the desert referenced? You know, and he's like, he starts asking about where did God speak to Moses? Where did God speak to Elijah? Where did God speak to Jesus? And and then he's, he just started using and pulling these things out, like the main stories out of the Bible. And he's like, what, how many different crazy things happen in the desert? And, uh, and, and I'm making a long story short, but he turned it and he says, I want you to remember something and I never want you to forget it because I think it's a really critical part of the Bible that we breeze over. And I think Bible tells us how to live. And he says, I want you to remember this. Your desert season is holy ground. Mm -hmm. He says, your desert season is the ground in which your breakthroughs will take place. It's a place where your revelations will take place. This is where the supernatural move of God takes place. You can pray to get out of your desert season. You can despise it. You can hate it. You can do all these things. But at the end of the day, it's holy ground. So I would not despise it. I would not hate it. I would not pray to get out of it. I would meditate. I would listen. I would pray to see what God is doing so you can actually have your breakthrough, so you can actually have your miracle. But it won't happen trying to get out of it. It only happens if you sit in it, embrace it, pray, listen, and meditate, and let God do the rest. I will never, ever forget that mentoring session. It's probably one of the most vivid mentoring session memories I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah, that's great. And it's a wonderful uh, extrapolation of what we just heard too from Dave, because, you know, as a survivalist, he doesn't go into the wilderness to get out. Mm -hmm. He goes in to survive and to stay. And, And the reason he was able to, as he said, he had, you know, 13 days of food supply. Right. That, and the reason he survived all that was because he he saw it as a way of saying, all right, this is where I am. This is what I need. What do I need to learn? And notice he was he was watching the mink yeah. to find out where they gathered food. So, so and, he, and he didn't build a shelter for a while until he observed where there might be a risk to yeah. build a shelter. So in the wilderness, we often panic and we just want it to go away. And instead, what we need to be doing is saying, what am I learning here that can teach me something about what God wants to say to me through this experience and how I can meet him and listen to him Mm -hmm. and shed myself of all my own dependencies that I've had before. That's right. It's so deep. I love it. I love how he's it, it it into such a deep. It is. But I'm glad metaphor. he went there so that I didn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I hope people do invite this guy in. And I think he's got a message that people do need to hear. And especially in first world context of, you know, yeah. American lifestyle. So if anybody's looking for a great speaker with yeah, he travels, content. travels all around speaking and delivering this message. So it'd be great. But, you know, there's another piece of this that I was thinking about kind of metaphorically that I think applies to anything that we're really going after with our bold idea. You know, when he set out, you know, he, he listed all these things that you have to do as a strategy for a survival training. And, you know, you go into the wilderness and you establish your priorities and he basically had them all triaged and he went through them so fast. I think if we reround the tape, we could get them all, but I wrote down a few and uh, in the first three he said was, you know, you do, you deal with shelter, fire and water. Those are, that's your kind of like the, the essentials, right. you get that put away first because what that does, and, and when he said this is what triggered it for me, that creates stability, mm. right? And I'm thinking about when we get our bold idea, right? We need to be thinking about what are the essentials we need to, to create stability. So maybe, you know, we're not thinking about, uh, you know, an idea, but we're creating instability in it. And so there might be instability in what new idea you want to go after, But then the first thing you do is you say, all right, how do I stabilize this? Mm. You know, how do I create it so that I'm not having to spend all the time just trying to deal with the life-threatening aspects of it? Yeah. You know, I I, I need to have those three essentials. And then the next one he said, and it didn't apply, he he said in in this History Channel uh, reality show, 
but you know, is, is that you, you worry about signaling so you can get help. And well, I you thought, have to find a way to navigate out yourself or signaling for or, help or to get someone out. Exactly. Right. right. So you're trying to actually get out of the situation there. Right. Um, you, so you stabilize it and then you, you signal for help. But I thought even in our own bold idea, we often don't signal for help. Mm. You know, we think that I, this is my contained idea and I may be a little bit embarrassed by it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want people to realize I got lost in the forest, you know, <laughs> so I'm going to try to find my way out yeah. and, I, and maybe it, I'm not, you know, sure how to get out and I might get myself even worse in a pickle. Yeah. And instead of, you know, out of shame, we don't ask for help, you know, and so the whole idea of getting help from others uh, in an mm. idea, I think, is good. And then finally, the the thing that I remember him talking about is is that you need food. Of course, you need to find a daily sustainable fl- uh, supply of food, and and really that that's so you have some sustainability. It's the thing that allowed him to stay on the show. It's the thing that allowed him to not you know feast, but he wasn't losing weight anymore. You know, so right. he was at least able to grow a little bit from his uh, his worst condition. Right. And, uh, you know, presumably, as he said, he had, a, you know, inconceivably, he could probably stay out there indefinitely. Right. You know, <laughs> even his dreams had adapted to how to <laughs> deal with that environment, you know. Right. And I think that that even is, is telling that the more we get saturated by our bold idea, the more our minds start to wrap itself around the context of that. Yeah. And, and really it becomes something that starts to become sustaining. So to me, there was some bold idea kind of ideas behind it, just in terms of how a survivalist goes out into the wilderness to conquer the wilderness. Maybe those same strategies applies to whatever bold idea we're contemplating that God might be giving us. That's good. That's good. Anything else, Armin? Nope. That's all I got. All right. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. We certainly uh, had a great time talking to Dave and hearing some of his wilderness (laughs) adventures. And I know that he has a lot more to share, but uh, we look forward to uh, our next guest and uh, and also just want to look forward to things that we hear from you, comments that you might have on the show. So you can reach us at boldideapodcast.com slash 48. This is episode 48. And you'll find all the links to Dave's uh, websites, his books, uh, his some of the audio and video that he has there on his website that explains uh, something about the adventures that he's been through. So be sure to take a look at that. But then leave us a comment on our show notes at boldideapodcast.com or call us on our show line at 612-568-IDEA or 612-568-4332. Well, this is Larry Gates and Armin Asadi saying so long and go out and be your personal best this week. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.